10.30 this morning, we'll have reached the halfway point. <laughs> Didn't we start this? Did we start this in January? So we just had a little over six months to get halfway there. A little over. <laughs> yes. We'll see if we actually make it to the halfway point. Sounds like a challenge. Before we say anything else, I just want to say I appreciate all of you for slogging through this with me and Walton. I mean, he's not here, so I'm kind of speaking for both him and me, but this has been, I know for the both of us, this has been great. For, my, for me personally, this has been um, hugely helpful to have to, to have to put words to this stuff every week and to be kind of put on the spot every week has been great for my own sort of walk through this stuff. I, I don't remember if I told you all this at any point, but before... Before Walton and I agreed to sort of co-teach this lesson on Isaiah, I had already, in my own personal Bible study, committed it was a New Year's resolution to not leave the book of Isaiah all year. So it was just, it was, we'll call it providence, that, you know, that it happened that way. So anyway, all that to say, I appreciate every single one of you for going through this with me, and I'm hoping that um, this next half will be just as edifying for me as it as the first one has been um i kind not to put y'all on the spot but yeah kind of to put y'all on the spot um i don't i'm not asking to hear from everybody in the room but i would like to hear from at least a couple of you um how i mean how has this study so far been for been for you has it been helpful in changing your thinking on anything has it been strengthening for you has it been edifying has there been any specific things that stand out over the past six months that maybe you've kept with you longer than just, you know, the Sunday morning? And I'm totally comfortable with awkward silence. I'll just wait. <laughs> Not everybody wants Yeah. Well, for me, it's definitely uh, added an extra layer of understanding. Uh, to the context, at least, to Isaiah. I think the front half is the hardest part. Yeah. Because uh, you get into a lot a lot more extensive Christological passages in the second half. Or it, at least that's been the way I've looked at it. So the hope is that is that uh, it'll get better and better with time as, as well, we go I, through I'm the book. For me, the first half is much more difficult to make interesting. <laughs> it's definitely that. Yeah. And, 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 but it's been very interesting, particularly the, the stuff that you have gleaned from Matthew Pajot and, and uh, the ancient world outlook you know, that Isaiah was operating within. It's been really interesting and helpful. idea of, um, of this consistent exile, exodus type idea, um, particularly going down to Egypt. Um, I know in the New Testament we really refer to most of it as Babylon, but we 
we see that obviously in the book of Revelation, but I think they're symbolic of both this idea of this exile and redemption out of that exile. Uh, so there's this constant running theme of that throughout all the scripture. I even went back a few weeks ago, I forget where we were when you, when you brought this up, but I went back to the beginning of my Bible, and I've got a big blank page right next to the beginning of Genesis, and I just wrote, notice that there is not only a creation, new creation theme, but an exodus and new exodus theme that runs through it all of scripture as God is working to redeem his people. So whenever I end up sitting down to go through all of scripture again, I'm going to hopefully be able to keep that in mind, and I think that's been brought up a lot as we go through Isaiah. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate how you shared as something that's been challenging with it. I mean, it, it has been challenging for me for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I, we're going to come up in this chapter in something that I just really, I struggle with it. And we'll talk about that as it comes up. But that is, that is the uh, responsibility of the Christian to wrestle. You know, the name Israel means he who wrestles with God. That name was given as a blessing, not as a curse, and that is who. The, that's what. That's what the church is. We we are. It is. It is part of our. I don't want to say job. It's part of our calling to to wrestle through these things with God. He wants us to. He wants us to wrestle with Him, and to take Him seriously enough to to duke it out with Him. Um, this is this is what God wants. This is how David interacts with God in the Psalms. That's the example that he gives for us, um, um, and you can you can do this in a spirit of humility. But it's it's uh, you know ask, seek, and knock. The door will open, but you have to bang on the door. He's not just going to open it for you. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, and the glory of kings to seek it out. Right. And so I think one thing that I've taken away from this first half of the study of Isaiah is that no matter how deep you go with it, it, it goes deeper. It's almost like God is saying, how far do you want to go with this? Um, because every time I think I've reached the bottom of this book, 
another layer opens up and it's it's more than I can comprehend for sure so anything else before we read chapter 33 So we'll just take this, I guess, a chunk at a time. We'll read sort of the first four verses, and then we'll go on from there. The heading that I have, for, and I have the ESV, the heading that I have is, O Lord, be gracious to us. So it's this sort of prayer of petition. But it starts off not talking about God, but about something else. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. When you have finished betraying, they will betray you. And then he turns to Yahweh. O Lord, be gracious to us, we wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is leapt upon. So Isaiah addresses this uh, this destroyer, whatever that is, and I mean, I, my mind immediately goes to the Exodus story, as Nick pointed out. This this Isaiah invokes Exodus over and over again. The destroyer is the angel who who takes out all the little seeds of Egypt and preserves only the seeds of Israel, i.e., the firstborn. That is the destroyer, and it's named that in the story of Exodus. It's called the destroyer. The Egyptians, I read you all this story, the Egyptians in their remembrance of the Red Sea deliverance, they called this this primordial entity, this principality that, that moves at God's bidding. They called it the destroyer. It was this known thing that shows up every few thousand years and just lays waste. Um, that's the destroyer. And so... By naming the destroyer, Isaiah is talking about Assyria, but he's cutting through the surface, and he's talking about the principality underneath it. In the same way that in talking about Egypt, he in calling Egypt Rahab, he's not just calling attention to Egypt, he's calling attention to the demonic forces behind it. Does that make sense? So he's getting under the surface here, and he's, he's getting at the heart of the matter. On one level, this is Assyria, and on the other level, it's it's sort of the principality, you know, behind or or above her. This is also, in some sense, a judgment against Israel, who has betrayed itself. You know, at this point, the northern kingdom has betrayed the southern kingdom. I don't remember when we talked about this, but I know we did talk about it. And so, you know, in as much as as Israel herself has participated in this sort of self betrayal. Um, she has sort of become this, uh, you know, this sort of terrible thing that must in the end be destroyed herself. And the challenging thing with this verse is that God doesn't just go in and make it right immediately. He doesn't just put a stop to it. He says, when you have finished betraying, you know, sometimes in the, in the, 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 the darkness of it all in the dark night of the soul when it seems like all that is around is just is just evil and terrible the promise that God gives is not 
that he'll just step in and snap his fingers and make it right. But he says there will be an end to it. It's not infinite. It will eventually stop. And sometimes that's the only answer of hope that God gives. That is the case here. He doesn't say, I'm going to step in and stop Assyria. But he does say that eventually this will end. It won't go on forever. And sometimes that's all we have. That's sometimes that's all God gives us. Uh, talk to me about this chunk of verses. So there's, there's several ways that this chunk of verses invokes the Exodus and the Red Sea deliverance. Um, we already mentioned one with the naming of the destroyer. It says, um, it says that the, the, the judgment of God against evil is going to be like a plague of locusts. That's in verse 4. Right, so that should... You should see the connection with that in the Exodus. Uh, there's also um, in verse 2, well, we don't really see it in this version that I have here with ESV, but I'll read the Septuagint version of verse 2. The seed of the disobedient was made for destruction, but our salvation is in a time of affliction. So it's in a time of the affliction of the disobedient that, um, that Israel is saved, right? And there's the great inversion that we've talked about over and over again, where the suffering of God's people is suddenly in, in, uh, in a moment flipped on its head. Um, the seed of the disobedient is set apart for destruction. Well, that's, that's the destroyer coming to the firstborn of the Egyptians. Um, so you see repeatedly in this section that Isaiah is 
is identifying what Israel's going through now or what the true remnant of Israel is going through now with um, what happened way back when at the, at the Red Sea Deliverance. Um, let's flesh that out a little further. Nick, you brought this up, just the idea of the Exodus being so important to Isaiah. Um, scripture makes a big deal about this, the new Exodus. So I'd like to take the time to flesh that out a little bit because I think it's important for how we understand what Isaiah is talking about. And I, I want to do this in a couple different ways. Um, first, I want to talk about how the church is the new Israel. Now, this is something that we say at uh, Christ Community here, but as I was sort of kind of organizing my thoughts around this chapter, I thought, well, what, what verses actually say that? And I was used to thinking about it as an idea, but it was it took me a minute to actually come up with verses that actually talk about that. But I have a few. Uh, so could someone look up Hebrews 12, 18 through 24? For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness of gloom and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. They could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven to God, the judge ball, and the spirits of righteous uh, the spirits of the righteous make perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How far? Uh, no, that's good. That 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 gets us to where we need to go. I mean, this this may seem like an obvious question, but who is he? Who is he writing to? Who is he talking to? The church. The church. The, the whatever church it was that he was writing to, that's his audience, right? And he's saying, "You are." He's saying you're on the exodus, right? And the end of your journey is is the mountain. All right, I've got another one. Um, and this is in Isaiah, actually. Can someone look up Isaiah 45, 17? This one's a little trickier, but if you stop and meditate on it, you realize very quickly that this has got to be talking about, this has got to be about the church. There's no other way that this verse could be true. Um, I've got one more to share. And it may be that y'all know other verses that talk about this, about the church being the true Israel, but these are the ones that I came across. I'll read this one from Romans 9, starting in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are children, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And I believe, and I'm just now thinking about this as I heard myself read this verse, but I think this is what the whole book of Galatians was about in the first place, was returning to this sort of, um, this sort of um, uh, legalistic notion of the law as though Christ is bound by that. Yeah. The promise came before Galatians 6.16 is where Paul uses the terms the Israel of God. There you go. Referring to the church. Right, right. Greg, you look like you, you have a, you got something. No, no, I'm, oh, okay, I'm very okay. thick-headed this morning. Oh, okay, okay. Hard. Okay, all right. I'm trying. I'm trying. Um, all right, so that's one way to talk about it, is to see verses in Scripture that, you know, as clearly as you can find, say that the church is the new Israel. Another way to do it is to look at the the word Exodus itself, which, I mean, you know, because we keep coming back to this, that it was such a central moment for Israel's history. Their identity is wrapped up in Look, for them, the exodus is the moment they were created. That was their creation. The, they, were, they were pulled, they were surgically removed from Egypt and formless and void, and God distills them in the wilderness the same way that he creates the world over six days, right? He slowly molds them and shapes them into the wilderness into the people, right, that, they, that he, he wants them to be. Which um, was the Isaiah that said? Isaiah 45, 17. World without end, 45, 17. Yeah. Um, I mean that's 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 our that's our doxology. That's yeah. All right. So, the Exodus. What does the word Exodus mean? It's a Greek word. Departure. Yeah. I mean, but both of those work as translations. I mean, literally, it's the way out. The way out. The way out. X out. Out of like ex nihilo. Out of. And then odos, which is not actually how they would say it, but it doesn't matter. The way. The way. What was the first name for Christianity before it was called Christianity? The way. Someone look up Acts 9. And read verse 2. Who was who talking about? Saul? Saul. Saul. Still breathing threats and murders against his this, uh, this miraculous movement taking place, uh, you already said it, it was at Antioch they were first called Christians. Before that, and in a wider area than that, it was first known as the way. Uh, you're already in Acts. Look at chapter 19. And read verse, um, I think, 14. What you say? 14? Nope, nope, not 14. 23. Nope, that's not it either. 
Is it? I can't read my own handwriting. 1923, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. I believe there's a couple more. I have here 24, 22. Acts 24, 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribute comes down, I will decide your case. You see that this was a common name for Christianity early on. We can drag in John too. We can drag in John. I am the way. Yes. An early manual. Is this what you were about to say? The Didache? Okay. Go well, ahead. maybe. Are you, you can talk about the two ways? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We were about to say this. Yeah. All right. So, first of all, this is in Proverbs. The two ways. The way that leads to destruction and the way that leads to life. Moses talked about this to Israel right after the Red Sea deliverance. He said, There are before you two ways. All right. The early sort of manual for churches. This, uh, this, this was a book called uh, the Didache, which just means the teaching. Um, and it was just, a, it was just a, it was a, it was a manual for churches getting started. And it's mostly, it's mostly a, a compilation of uh, uh, quotes of scripture from the Sermon on the Mount and then some teaching of the apostles. It's just like a loose montage of helpful verses, you know, for early churches first getting started. We're talking like, what, A.D. 100, less than 100? I mean, this would have been written around the same time as the Gospel oh, yeah, of John. Yeah, uh, I think that they're putting it anywhere between like A.D., maybe late 60s, all the way to the latest, maybe the 120s at the latest. So this, was, this is being written at the same time that the Gospels and later epistles are being written. So we're talking super early. Some of the early church fathers actually considered this scripture until they sort of they sort of worked it out that it wasn't. But this is how this is how important this this book was to the early church. Um, we actually quote the Didache often on Sunday mornings, just as this broken bread was scattered on the mountains and being gathered together became one. So may your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. That's straight out of the Didache. All right. That book starts when you first open it up. It talks about the two ways, right? As sort of the summary of the book of Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount. It talks about this is the way that leads to life. This is the way that leads to death. So this is this is a, a direct and literal and real way that the church is... Uh, living out the function of Israel today, right? We are, it's not just a cute analogy to say that we are participating in the new exodus. This is really the new exodus. Like, this is the real thing. Well, yeah. uh, for when, uh, I think it's in Luke, uh, uh, the narrative of the, trans, uh, the uh, transfiguration, Jesus and Moses and Elijah are talking about the great death he is going to accomplish. The great death, that word is actually Exodus. Yeah. So, 
concerning his exodus? It's translated as the great death or something like that, but the Greek there is exodus. Great way out. Concerning his leading of his people out. Now, I mentioned this a few weeks back, but you recall in Jude, it says Christ or Jesus who led his people out of Egypt. We are living out the new exodus, and that's what Isaiah is talking about. Um, I mean, there's a reason that I keep bringing up exodus over and over again. It's This is... Some of these references would have been obvious to the Israelites, you know, at the time that Isaiah is giving these prophecies. It's less obvious to us, so we have to pull it out, and we have to say over and over again, this is about the Exodus. All right, verse 5. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. I kind of wish David was here because he brought up the fear of the Lord last week and I told him that we were going to end up talking about it and then we didn't because the conversation just didn't go that direction. But here we're talking about the fear of the Lord. Now this is a, to me, this is a challenging verse. The fear of the Lord is a prize to seek after. To be in a state of fearing God is something to pursue. It doesn't say that, and, and I don't think this is just semantics, it's not saying merely that the fear of the Lord leads to the treasure of the kingdom. It says that this, the, having a fear of the Lord is itself the treasure to seek after. Now that's a challenging thing to hear, especially because we're not used to uh, being afraid of something as being a good thing. Well, but isn't the fear of the Lord in its purest sense more of a deep concern of what Dad would want you to do? Not that He's going to pop you yeah. and destroy you forever, you know, because, you know, you trust Him, but you become more and more concerned with what would He want me to do? I will admit that that is my inclination. Um, my my feeling on that, and that's that's what I've grown up hearing taught as well. And so I have I have an affinity for that way of thinking about it. I will admit that my view on it has changed, and I, I could be wrong, and I'm I'm perfectly willing to be proven wrong with this later. Part of what's changed me with this is having a kid myself. I, I'll, I'll just I'm, I'll admit this. Um, Liam isn't isn't old enough to respect me but he is old enough to fear me <laughs> and I'm not a tyrant about it I don't go out of my way to make him afraid of me but the fear of his father is the beginning of wisdom for him that is that's the only way he can be wise right now he can't be wise any other way except to be afraid of his dad and I'm not I say Again, we're used to thinking of fear as a bad thing. That makes it, you know, it, it's just the way that I think, I think it's just the way reality works. And again, my mind on this is changing, and, and I won't, I'm not going to pretend that my view on this is fully fleshed out yet by any means. But I think to call the fear of the Lord just respect is to water it down. Go ahead. What, what you got? Uh, well, modern culture is so anti-authority. Yeah. You know, the idea that, that we have to submit to authority. 
that's I think part a lot of the reason that the idea of fear has turned into such a always a negative thing. You know what I'm saying mm -hmm. in our culture. So it's it's um, the idea that fear can't be a good thing is I think part of I think that goes along with all that in, in postmodern culture. You know. Does that make sense? A deep concern um, can include an element of fear. I'm trying to say that if you're a true believer, you'll be deeply concerned and you know somewhat fearful. Yes. Because what's the verse where it says uh, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God? Not an angry God. Living, a living God. And I've always, I've always interpreted that there's a God is going to do what should be done. Period. It don't matter how much He loves you, know, loves you. If you have sinned over and over and over again. He's going to judge. And I think that's the sense of that there. And so, again, a deep concern for what would God want me to do in this situation, it can include an element of fear. But if you're a true believer, you know at the very end of this life, He's got, he's got you. Because once you're saved, you're always saved. You can't lose it. And so that's what I mean. I, but to... Uh, I, I overemphasis, in my opinion, on just fear of God. I just I think, particularly for inexperienced Christians, for the world who you want to draw in to you know to try and get them to begin to study the Word to become a believer, I think may uh, build uh, an incomplete picture. Here's another way of expressing that. I think. Um, Fear of the Lord is is like acknowledging that He is both able and willing to punish. Uh, but for those who love Him, what is that punishment? His displeasure, His chastening, or I mean, even just in broken, breaking our hearts. Now, for some, the fear should be of eternal damnation. Uh, so there's there's a broad range here of what we can fear from Him. Uh, and and I think it's legit, you know. If we love God, we shouldn't want, we should be afraid of displeasing Him. Just just because that would break our hearts, <coughs> you know, not because He's going to drop a ton of bricks on us. I am, I am, uh, this is not a hill that I'm willing to die on. Because like I said, I, I am not, I don't pretend to understand what it means to fear God. I'm not going to pretend that I'm holy enough to be in that position. However, I don't think this verse is about salvation. And I think we tend to jump, when we talk about fear of the Lord, we tend to jump to, well, am I going to be, you know, am I going to heaven or hell? I, that's not, I don't think that's what I think the, the Christian very quickly moves beyond that. And that may be at the start of it, but it very quickly becomes more about the relationship with God than about whether you're going to hell or heaven. And if a Christian, all right, I'm going to be a little harsh here, but this is honestly what I believe at this point in my life. And I, this is being recorded, so I may look back on this five years from now and, you know, regret having said this. But I, I think that 
and there are exceptions to this, I'm going to generalize to make a point. If a Christian is worried, a Christian who's been walking with Christ for years is legit worried about whether they're saved or not. More often than not, that's because their conscience is hurt by something and they're experiencing it as an existential crisis. More often than not, people who are worried about whether they're saved aren't really worried about whether they're saved. They're not living the way they're supposed to be living. And that may not mean that they're in some deep besetting sin. It may be that they're not living out their calling that they're supposed to be living. It may be a sin of omission instead of a sin of commission. Yeah. Right? But, but when your conscience inside you is like refuses to be consoled, right? you experience that as an existential crisis, as a salvation issue. I'm not saying that that's the case for everybody who struggles with their faith. I'm not saying that. But... I am saying that I think people who struggle with salvation probably could do with a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord because maybe they would clean up their life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, that's harsh, but I'm speaking, I'm speaking as someone who struggles with complacency myself and, 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 and am constantly feeling this... this um, ache in my conscience that man, Christ demands everything. He demands everything of you. And uh, when, when Paul says that you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, the second half of that verse doesn't negate the first one. Yes, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good pleasure. And you better work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he puts that trembling there at the end to make sure that you understand he's not just talking about, you know, some sort of like reverent respect, right? It is, there is a, um, there is a good kind of fear and that is the fear of the Lord. So uh, somebody clean that up for me. Well, the fear and trembling, he allows things in our life. That's what's scary. Real hard things. So again, having a deep concern uh, for um, what God would want you to do in various situations, it doesn't remove you know, that element of fear. Because again, He's going to do what should be done. Period. Because He's perfect. And so, He will allow things in your life that can be quite painful. And that's I think also the fear of the Lord has to do with our job as priests. You know, I keep coming back in my head to this notion of priesthood. The priesthood is a scary, dangerous job. You get it wrong, you really get it wrong. There's no, there's no middle ground with being a priest of the living God, right? And so I think the fear of the Lord has something to do with that as well. Again, I'm not... I'm not thinking about salvation when I'm talking about this stuff. I'm assuming in my thinking about this that this is someone who's walking with Christ, right, in a committed relationship with God. That's sort of my assumption here with how I process this. I'm not thinking about this as, as a salvation issue. I'm thinking of this as 
how seriously are you taking this faith? That's sort of, yeah. yeah. I agree with everything. Yeah. I'm just thinking of a I think I think I, I agree with everything you just said. I think that um, maybe part of the difficulty in talking about this in a group setting is that uh, different people with different uh, ways that they're built need to hear different things. <laughs> uh, and Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, does a phenomenal job of going back and forth between warning, reassurance, warning, reassurance. Yes. And it's, it's this constant, it's almost a whiplash of reading the book of Hebrews where he almost says, you're about to lose your salvation, but then he's like, but you can't lose your salvation. And then he gives another warning and then he comes back to reassurance again. And, and I think, I, I mentioned the ox and the donkey last week. These are two types of Christians. Um, and, um, and, and both are loved by God. That's the kicker. God loves the ox and he loves the donkey. Um, one of the two needs a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord. The other of the two needs assurance that uh, nothing he does will be good enough to earn God's love. And both of those statements are true. Yes. Yes. I would say from my own experience, too, that choose a foolish or rebellious path, God's chastening often will be just letting it play out yeah. and, and let you reap yeah. re what you have sown until you realize it. That's judgment right there. That is the judgment of the Lord. Yeah. Alright, anything else on the fear of the Lord? Jim, you mentioned things that are challenging. This for me is challenging. This is something I'm still working through. So again, I'm not coming at this from from any sort of uh, pretension that I have this figured out. But this is the way I'm thinking about the fear of the Lord at this point in my walk with God. I think I need more of it. So, all right, uh, verse seven. Behold, 
We've already read this verse, haven't we? I'm going to give the translation I gave before. <clears throat> Behold, they're Erelim. They're, uh, they're angels of the altar. Cry outside. The angels of peace weep bitterly. The outside where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's getting louder. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. This is that word for established by God that usually has to do with standing or getting up. Now I will resurrect, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You have the lifting up of God, you have his resurrection, and you have his exaltation. You conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble, your breath is a fire that will consume you, and the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Well, I'll read a couple more verses. Here you are far off. Here you who are far off, what have I done? And you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? We've already talked about some of this. Isaiah is starting to repeat himself more and more. We're talking about the consuming fire. We talk about the altar and sort of the cosmic temple that burns for from everlasting to everlasting. We talked about how that's Babylon. The smoke from her rises up forever and ever. Um, what can we talk about with this chunk of verses that we haven't discussed already? You, you got some? No, no, no. I was chuckling at the smoke arising from Babylon, Revelation 19.3. Craig and I quote that together all the time. Oh, okay. So. Is, it, is that encouraging or... Hallelujah. That's what I, I was doing. I Hallelujah. <laughs> All right. Once again, Isaiah is talking not just about what's happening on the surface with the tumult of the nations by invoking the angelic principalities. He's getting below the surface. He keeps doing that, and and um, I think it's good for us to to see that because it reminds us that there's stuff going on under the surface with the tumult in the nations in our time. Um, there's not a whole lot we can say about it other than that. So. Excluding visible. Uh, visible. Yeah. Visible. Yeah. Can't see it. Yeah. Um, I am tempted... We didn't make it as far as I thought we would. I'm tempted to save this next section for next week, but let's go ahead and go through because we still have about 10 minutes. Um, we can at least start talking about it, and if we have to finish up at the start of next week, that's fine. He who walks up righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions. This is the answer to the question, who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who can stand in God's eternal presence? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks and his bread will be given him. 
his water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. So he's saying again that Babel will be no more. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. Here's the, this is the, the verse that I was trying to get us to. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. You remember what the name Jesus means? Yahweh saves. The Lord is our king. He will save. Our three party, or our three, uh, our government is established according to this here. Judge, lawgiver, king. But separating it to the founding three, fathers let, uh, yeah. focused on that when they, I, someone else taught this. Yeah. And seeing it just now, remember it. And so it's kind of nice. Well, that's they, a good... They couched yeah. our government, the three branches of government. That's actually a, a fantastic springboard to what I want to talk about with this verse. Thank you for that. Because, You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> because... <laughs> because... <laughs> with, with... Yeah, with America, they were wise and they were right to divide it among these groups because you can't centralize that into one entity. Otherwise, you end up with uh, the worst of the worst. And they were wise to institute this sort of gridlock between the categories where the law and the, uh, the lawgivers and the judge and the, the different branches of government are in this sort of like, um, this sort of orchestrated gridlock. That's a healthy thing because it keeps the, keeps the nation from devolving into either chaos or tyranny, right? That's wisdom on the part of the fathers. This is saying, this is all centralized into one person. Yeah. Now, this is another example where it's really hard for me to understand this. And I'm just, I'm being honest, I really struggle with wrapping my head around this because I don't know what it means for God to be king. Now, Nick was really helpful earlier this week because he and I talked for a while about this and... Nick got me further, way further in my thinking than I would have gotten otherwise. Uh, but, I mean, to be clear, I, I struggle with understanding what it matters for me practically. Like, what does it matter in my life that God is king? I get that God is over everything. I get that. But the king is a particular function. That's a specific office. And, and God insists that he wants to be our king. That's why he didn't want Saul to be king. He wanted to be Israel's king. So what does that mean, actually, practically, for God to be king? We don't really have a great example today because the monarchs that we're familiar with, i.e., you know, the English royalty, are basically just presidents. There's, I mean, it's just a, it's, at the end of the day, it's mostly formality. Yeah. So, but, but this is not formality. God is not talking about a formality here. It has to do 
and Nick helped me to see this, and I'll try to, yeah, we'll, we'll end up having to start with this next week, but it has to do with God being um, a warrior. He's not just a king, he's a warrior king, right? And that's, yeah. It wasn't until modern times that the king wasn't a warrior. You know when the last time a king fought on the front lines with his people was? I know we have a couple of history nerds here. Do you know? Alexander the Great always let in the most important charges. Okay, yeah, but that was like in BC. Does anyone know when the most recent time was that a king fought on the front lines? I want to say World War One. It was Albert the First of Belgium against Germany. It was a defensive battle. It was sort of a, you know, this is the last stand kind of thing against the German forces. Um, they won the, the defense. Um, but that was the last time in, that was what, 1914? Something like that? We have not had, and we have no frame of reference to understand what it means for a king to himself fight for his people. Um, consider that a teaser for next week. I would just, before we depart, uh, I would just mention that this list here, Judge Lawgiver and King, uh, reflect three offices of Christ. Um, yeah. Prophet, priest, and king. Uh, Moses being the lawgiver, you know, I'm going to send you a prophet like Moses. So, they're the lawgiver, and then a judge is like a priest, who's a mediator of the law. So, and at the end, it says, he will save us. Yeah, well, this is very that's his, he wants to use the three. Yeah, of course, I mean, we have to be malleable. We have to give our heart to Jesus, but that's what he's using for three and four, I reckon. Is 15 and 16 about Jesus? It has to start there, but it becomes being about the Christian as we're molded more and more into his image. When God says, "When God says you shall be holy, for I am holy," it's not a it's not a suggestion. It's an inevitability. You will be holy. Well, and that leads into a statement about Christ in His glory. Uh, you will see the King in His beauty. Uh, in uh, Isaiah fifty three, speaks of Christ very differently. He was so marred and injured that we couldn't even look at him. So, this is Christ. Second advent Christ. Thank y'all. Thank you. Thank you.